Jeremy, uh, I could stand to have just a little more volume from you, honestly. For real? Yeah, just a little bit. Just a touch. You're always low. You were low last time. I, I know. Was here too. That's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, certified grit grinder. I am your co-host, Jeremy Ruggles, covert disposer of Christmas trees. I'm Peter Cook, and I'm only just a beginner. I'm Taylor Rowley. I'm an aspiring grocery store sample chef. Ooh. Wow. Welcome back, Taylor. Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me again. You, dear listener, may or may not remember, but Taylor was here before with uh, Minnie Ripperton, right? Perfect Angel. That's correct. Yes. Well, welcome back. You want to remind them uh, who you are? Yes. I'm um, an LA-based music supervisor, DJ, and radio host. I have a radio show on NTS Radio called The Windmills of Your Mind which you can hear every fourth Thursday. Yeah, great program. I've tuned in a few times now. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And uh, I mostly, um, I play all kinds of music, I think, but I tend to play a lot of female singers, which maybe, which is kind of why I've talked about Minnie Ripperton and now Karen Carpenter. <gasps> yeah. On this. So no. sorry. Did I interrupt? <laughs> did I, oh, did I no, I, ruin the intro? My, well, my... Uh, my title was a little bit of a teaser, though only just a beginner. We're we're here to talk about a Carpenter's record because you you actually uh, in the last episode that you were on, you talked about your love for Karen Carpenter and thought it would be best for you to come back and talk about that. I you know I will say now uh, I'm on record on one of our episodes promising our former guest, Will Moss, that he could come back and talk about the Carpenters with us. There's still plenty of opportunity, Will, because there's a lot of cheap Carpenters records out there. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I said last time on the Mini Ripperton episode that the Carpenters are like the thrift store band to end all thrift store bands. You can find Close to You and what fans call the Tan Album, which is just their self-titled record. But um, you can find that always for a dollar at a thrift store. Except Christmas Portrait, apparently, their Christmas album, which is goes for a lot of money. It does. Everyone's got to have so. those Christmas jams. Does Christmas with yeah. the Carpenters also go for a lot of money? Yeah, they both do. Dang. Oh, they have multiple. That's so weird. Yeah, they had the, the first Christmas record in 78, Christmas Portrait, and then they followed up in 84 with an old-fashioned Christmas. Okay, so... Well, that's a posthumous release, okay. then. Yeah, okay. Well, not to get too far ahead of ourselves. We're, we're Yeah. <laughs> so we're we're here today to talk about Carpenter's Close to You, which was released on A&M. That was their second studio album, August 19th, 1970. It peaked at number 2 on the US Billboard Albums charts, due in no small part to two big hit songs that appear on this record. And we're going to start with the opening cut side one track one, We've Only Just Begun. 
We've only just begun to live White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way We've only begun Do any of you guys get visions of unhinged John Cusack when you hear that song? Is that just me? Unhinged John Cusack? Yeah. Um, what's that a reference to? Uh, 1408, I think the movie's called. Oh. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's what I think of immediately when I hear that song. And I think it captures that... Uh, I mean, I'm sure they used it partially because there's that dark edge to her voice. Was that the, was that a movie, was 1408 like a time stamp? Was that the movie, did it have like Rachel Lee Cook in it? I don't know actors. No, it's Stephen King, right? It's about him being in a hotel room and he's like trapped in it. And I think the hotel room number is 1408. Oh, no. Yeah, the one I'm thinking of had Patrick Swayze in it. Different movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's definitely not that. I uncanned a very bad reference, guys. I'm sorry. That just derailed everything. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad reference at all. But, um... It just happened to be a reference that none of your other co-hosts picked up on. <laughs> not John Cusack fans here, eh? Yeah, well, I'm sure they're out there somewhere. I'm sure every other one of our listeners picked up on it immediately. It was like, yes, that's perfect. Hey, I like say anything, high fidelity, gross point blank. You like his early work. The grifters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. pre-2000s work. I'm not I'm not too proud to admit that I, I rewatched Serendipity yesterday, so. Hell yeah. Oh, wow. Who's the bigger, uh, who's the bigger John Cusack fan now? I think you win. You win. I surrender. <laughs> I'm in the dregs of Christmas movies right now. I'm saving all the good ones for later. So I've been watching really bad or just like, you know, 
B and C list Christmas movies lately. Yeah, we we've been doing the same thing over here. We just I watched the Santa Claus two for the first time. Like I was, <laughs> you know, I watched the I watched the trailer for that, and I was like, I just can't. Oh man, I. But I did watch the first one. I was the perfect age when the first one came out, so there's like tons of nostalgia, and it's very easy for me to look past the flaws. But my parents never took me to see the second one. And my daughter, who uh-huh. is seven, is a big fan of the first one. So like, all right, Santa Claus 2, here we go. That was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so bad. I, I can almost... And then there's a third And then there's a third one. I think I have to watch the third one this year just to <laughs> see like, how deep it goes. <laughs> yeah. Like, this, the second one was so bad that I would honestly recommend it just to, like, watch the train wreck. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Well, the second one, I think, only takes place at the North Pole, right? From what I saw on the trailer. No, there's the point where he has to go back to the real world in order to uh, find a wife real quick. You know, that old Santa Claus trope. Yeah. All right. I'm going to steer us away from this now. Okay. (laughs) Unless we want to become Santa Claus Minute. I'm totally okay with that. That that would be... No, it's all right. I get to be the one to inform you guys now that this episode's going to come out after Christmas, so you're going to seem especially crazy. (laughs) (laughs) We watch all the good Christmas movies in December, and then January is just that kind of Christmas hangover. (laughs) Right. Uh, Carpenters. Going back to Carpenters. We've only just begun talking about the Carpenters. And that song was written by a songwriting team, Roger Nichols and Paul Williams, not Paul Williams from The Temptations. That was written as a jingle for a Crocker Bank commercial in 1970. And that version in the commercial was sung by Williams. And it was heard on TV Mm -hmm. by Richard Carpenter. And he thought it sounded like it could be a, it sounded like Carpenter's material. And he, it turned out to be easy to get the rights to the song because Paul Williams was also writing for A&M at the time. And it turned out there was, as I understand it, there was a full version of the song that Paul Williams had written and was able to give to him. And at that point in time, the Carpenters needed another hit. The title track from this, Close to You, had been a, a single. And, you know, it, it proved that the Carpenters were commercially viable, but they needed a quick follow-up and... You know, Richard turned out to be really good at having an ear for songs that would work for the Carpenters' sound. And, you know, he, to this day, calls this the band's signature song. I'd agree with that. That it's the signature song? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would too, because it's, for me, for a long time before I really became an active, earnest Carpenters fan, it's probably the first song I would think of. Maybe that or Superstar would be the songs that I would associate with them first. Totally. Uh, I got into the Carpenters because I saw kind of, it's, it probably wasn't a time life compilation, but it was a kind of a time life style, uh, compilation commercial where they just show clips of the person performing and have the track listing like rolling up. You remember those yeah. from like late night TV, yeah. like mail order CDs and stuff. Well, they had a carpet, they had a Carpenters one. And I remember only knowing snippets of their songs for so long, just because of that commercial. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I always loved we, We've Only Just Begun because of that. And it's funny because um, I was reading today that Richard Carpenter, he was an insomniac. So he, and he was on, they were on tour like constantly. So he would just spend a lot of time watching late night movies and stuff. And he would get a lot of his ideas from commercials and hearing like a snippet of a song in a, in a movie 
and then um and then covering it yeah or you know it would be an inspiration for another song his story about goodbye to love which is not on this album but just the fact that he was watching a movie where there was like a fictional song called goodbye to love yeah bing crosby yeah and it didn't you don't even hear this goodbye to love song in the movie but he just he liked that as a title and then wrote a song based on that (laughs) yeah i know amazing so I don't know, I felt kind of, I also have a little bit of insomnia. So I felt like a kinship with him from, um, you know, my memory of how I got into the car, my memory of how I got into the Carpenters, like watching, you know, a late night infomercial and then him do, you know, getting ideas from a commercial for songs. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a lifetime insomniac myself. So I've spent a lot of late nights up with the TV. <laughs> and so I can yeah. relate. So I was, that was my next question for everyone. And you've kind of if you want to elaborate on that, once I ask this, feel free, Taylor, but I was going to ask how everyone's background or knowledge of the Carpenters, I should say, I'll just point this out, that their name is actually Carpenters, officially. It's not The Carpenters, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to slip and say The Carpenters, I'm sure. It's like Pixies are not The Pixies, they're just Pixies, but Mm -hmm. it seems they even call themselves The Carpenters sometimes, so that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah what so i guess i'll start i obviously know taylor that you're enthused on them what about uh sean so i've known for a long time that the carpenters are a band that i should dig into ever since hearing sonic's youth sonic youth's cover of the carpenter superstar and thinking okay well if sonic youth is into it then there's got to be something else and i just for some reason never dove into a record and then uh you mentioned Will Moss wanted to do a Carpenters record on the podcast at some point. I used to work with him in a record store and he's a huge Carpenters fan and kept telling me, you got to listen to the Carpenters. You got to listen to them. And one day I was like, all right, play me some Carpenters. Let's do it. And we didn't have any of the best Carpenters records at the time in the store. So we put on this like late period one. I don't remember which one it was. And I hated it. I was so annoyed with the music. (laughs) It was just like, I was too upbeat and too cheesy. I don't know what it was. And I just like never dove back in. But since they've been mentioned a few more times on the podcast, I've listened to a few songs here and there. And it's like, okay, yeah, there's some hits. I really enjoy this. And uh, I need to pick up some of their records next time I'm out digging in the dollar bins. Definitely. Jeremy? I am Jeremy. And being Sean's fictional brother, I have almost the exact same story. (laughs) yeah yeah the carpenters are just i mean i'd heard them they're in the air they're everywhere still but uh not until i heard the sonic youth cover of superstar was i like oh that's a really good song that's where it started for me Mm -hmm. as well and i'm sure a lot of the you know more modern people who are getting into the carpenters it's probably it was a whole compilation that that song was from of grunge era, no wave yeah. artists. I remember that from my college radio days. Yeah. Having that calm. The, uh, the Cranberries cover on that compilation is also really right. good. I think part of the problem with me was like, I recognized, okay, there's this underlying sadness and depth emotionally to the music you know understanding a little bit about like you know some of the personal struggles from uh the band members but i guess i still just had this concept like okay but the the music is all still probably bad like you just kind of have to look past that but that's that's another 
dollar bin skill, I guess. You know, we talked about that a lot in the Bob James episode of having to look past that first layer of the the shiny production and then also move past just like the all the hype that's around it. And when you can finally just just listen to the music and take it at face value, the music's incredible. I gotta say. It's not just dark themes. There's some amazing funky grooves going on here, some really interesting mm-hmm. changes in a lot of the songs, really cool, lush string production at times. I'm a fan of all of it now. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, Richard Carpenter is a very, very, very gifted pianist and arranger. I'd say that's probably what he'll probably end up being, you know, remembered for forever. And I mean, but you can't beat Karen Carpenter's voice. Like no one sounds like that. Yeah. That's a once in an existence voice right there. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I guess I'll go ahead. Mine feels convoluted to me. My relationship and background with Carpenter's when I was in high school, my, Dad had me sit down with him and watch, I think it was the A&E biography on the Carpenters. And I had no context for their music. You know, I I had never heard it before at that point in time. And most, for the most part, you know, he was going on and on about Karen Carpenter's voice. And I think in just hearing small clips here and there, it wasn't enough for me at the time to fully appreciate it. I think I liked most the story about the, uh, guitar solo, the the fuzz solo on Goodbye to Love being like the first power ballad uh, distorted solo. Uh-huh. And I thought that was really cool as a you know budding guitarist at the time. And I, I, apparently I wanted to do the album with Goodbye to Love on it because I just keep bringing that song up <laughs> over and over again on this episode. Um, but I did end up buying Close to You, this album that we're listening to today, and I think it was in late 99 or early 2000, probably a year or two after my father had shown me that biography. And I don't really necessarily remember listening to it a lot at first. I think I I just saw it and I knew there was something there that I was eventually going to figure out. And I had also in high school bought Sonic Youth's Goo. And that also took me a while to get into. A few years went by. I was living with roommates in early college, 2002, 2003. They were really into Sonic Youth, I started listening to Goo more. And of course, that has the song Tunic on it, song for Karen that was about Karen Carpenter. Are we all familiar with that song? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I figured that out. That's about Karen. I knew her story. And so I revisited Close to You and discovered the last song on it, another song. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) this is uh, something else. This is, you know, I was really getting into experimental music at the time and had no idea the Carpenters had ever gone there. And that is on this album. We'll, we'll feature that a little later in the episode. Still though, at that point, I, I really liked that. I liked some of their hits, but wasn't fully in. And then just a couple years ago, there's a musician. Her name is Natalie Prass. Have any of you heard of her? Yeah. She's, kind of funky she put out a song called far from you and it's a lovelorn response to close to you her whole life natalie press has been her whole life told that she looks like karen carpenter and she does look a lot like karen carpenter and so she did this as a tribute she became obsessed with karen carpenter as a result of that and uh that just did it for me i like i heard that song her her response to close to you and i just absolutely dug it and the last year or two, I've been like full on Carpenter's Renaissance, and 
that is why I was really stoked on uh, when Taylor, when you brought up being a big Carpenters fan, I'm like, well, let's do this. Is there yeah. more to your story? I'm guessing there's a little more to your story. Yes, <laughs> definitely. So, I mean, like, you know, all things usually with me start with I watched it in a movie or on television. Maybe that's why I do music supervision now. But, uh, yeah, I think I had a fascination with them kind of akin to, I guess, Kim Gordon's. Um, I always love like 1970s, what I would call like dark suburbia or dark Americana, like sort of um, Nixon youth, you know, uh, stuff like that. There was, you know, that was helped along by Todd Haynes's movie, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that. I haven't. Um, but it's a, it's, I mean, it's on YouTube. It's not released officially anywhere, but it's a film that Todd Haynes, the filmmaker made in college or in art school. And it tells the story of Karen Carpenter and the story of the Carpenters using only Barbies. And, uh, it's very, it's amazing. It's, it's really, really cool. Um, but it's very, very dark. And I saw that when I was in film school and got, was very obsessed with it. So yeah, I had a kind of a fascination with, her whole story and kind of how they had this persona of being very wholesome, you know, the kids next door. It was very like, uh, it felt like they were sort of being used to heal the country after the 60s to kind of get back to a sense of like, you know, nostalgic, like everything's okay. And what that was actually just all pretty much a facade because, you know, they had all of this, you know, underlying demons and not to get too far ahead, but I feel like that's very well-trodden territory. Like you said, Sonic Youth did a few songs about them in a cover, a very dark cover, and then there's this Todd Haynes film. Um, so I was really happy to come on here to talk more about their music because I do feel like their music kind of gets overshadowed by their personal lives sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, they have a complex story, and if you want to, if you'd like to start at the beginning, I think this is the appropriate time to do that. Okay. Okay. Well, the Carpenters were originally from New Haven, Connecticut. Richard was born in 46 and Karen in 1950. And Richard had a very strong interest in music from the get-go. He would spend hours listening to his father's extensive collection of 78s, which were mostly classical and jazz band leaders. And he became a very talented, mostly self-taught pianist. Eventually, the family moved to Downey, California in 1963, so Richard could pursue a music career. He got gigs playing organ at weddings and Methodist church services and started arranging Beatles songs in a church style instead of playing hymns. And (laughs) he met his future songwriting partner, the lyricist John Bettis at CSU Long Beach in 64. And that same year, Karen started learning how to play drums and taking lessons from local jazz players, which... Um, definitely informed her playing. And then the siblings formed the Richard Carpenter Trio with Wesley Jacobs on bass. He was a schoolmate of uh, Richard's. Originally, neither Karen or Richard sang in their group until they attended a demo session in a bassist named John Osborne, his garage. And Osborne heard her sing and was very taken with her voice. Uh, He signed them to his record label, Magic Lamp Records, and they recorded a single Neither side was successful. And in 1966, they performed at the Battle of the Bands at the Hollywood Bowl and won it and were signed to RCA Records. Uh, They recorded 
a couple demos for RCA. One was a Frank Sinatra cover and one was a Beatles cover, but the label chose not to produce them. And so they were let go from their contract, but they continued working on making demos and experimented with uh, overdubbing in the studio. They were big fans of um, Les Paul and Mary Ford. They kind of did all that kind of stacked vocal harmony um, in the studio. Weren't they called Spectrum? Were they called Spectrum at this point? Yeah, I'm. Yes. Uh, I wanted to say this anecdote before I get to that. In 1967, (laughs) it's okay. Richard and John Bettis, uh, they got jobs singing in like an old timey soda shop on Disneyland's Main Street, USA. But they were soon fired for being too radical because the their manager wanted them to sing early 20th century songs to keep with the theme of the place but they chose to sing popular contemporary songs that the customers requested but i thought that was hilarious that they were at one at one time deemed too radical um, <laughs> very risky that's the whole thing about them is that they were very not radical at all for that time uh after that karen and richard formed the short-lived sextet called spectrum which was also not successful, though they did regularly play the Whiskey A Go-Go here in L.A. and opened for Steppenwolf, which is crazy. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. During all this, they continued to send out demos to different labels, and then after Spectrum disbanded in 68, they decided to just be a duo and call themselves Carpenters. Finally, in 69, they received an offer to sign with A&M after Herb Alpert heard Karen sing, and he said it was love at first here. And they released their first album, originally called Offering, and then Ticket to Ride later, and released a rearranged cover of Ticket to Ride, which got to 55 on the charts, but the album was an overall flop. Yeah, yeah, and Herb Alpert was being pressured to drop them, um, but he felt that there was something untapped there. And at that point, brought them a then seven-year-old Hal David and Burt Bacharach song, called They Long to Be Close to You, and Richard and Karen weren't really too keen on it at first, as I understand, but Alpert insisted they give it a shot, and he told them, you know, he had some specific sections that they had to keep in the arrangement, but overall he gave them a lot of creative freedom, and they utilized what you you talked about, them experimenting with the multi-tracked harmonies that they had gotten from Mm -hmm. uh, Mary Ford and Les Paul, and... That is, I, I, that distinct section of the song that happens towards the end uh, was unique to their version at the time. Many other people had done the song before and it had never hit, as I understand it. It had never really, in those seven years that it had existed, no one had successfully made it a hit until Carpenters put their touch on it. Yeah, I um, in one of the documentaries I was watching about them, uh, Burt Bacharach was interviewed and he said that no one have, had understood the concept of it until the Carpenters recorded their version and that the original version was lame. <laughs> What's well, high praise from Burt Bacharach? Yeah, totally. I'm going to play the song. I'm going to play yeah, the song. Let's go ahead and listen to that up to, let's get at least to the part where we hear some of their multi tracked harmonies. Deal. to you 
Why do stars fall down from the sky every time you walk by? Just like me, they long to be close to you. On the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to We'll address those beautiful harmonies in a moment, but first of all, there was a flugelhorn solo in there, and apparently Richard... Love a good flugelhorn solo. So it can make or break a song, right? (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a trumpet, uh, but apparently it's a flugelhorn supplied by a guy named Chuck Finley, and I guess Richard had tried to imagine how Herb Alpert would play a part written by Burt Bacharach. Yeah, when he wrote that, that was how he imagined it, which makes sense with what you hear. But come time to record, Herb Alpert was unavailable. And so he was out on tour or something. So Chuck Finley came in and played it. But everyone, when the song was released, everyone thought that it was Herb Alpert, including Burt Bacharach. <laughs> and, oh, that's funny. Yeah. So a little anecdote about that uh, solo in there, which it is perfect. And it does sound like a Herb Alpert thing. Well, the Carpenters, they were so good in the studio that they could get something in one take a lot of the time. 
Um, but with this song, they were having trouble recording it from what I read. And so um, they took care. Karen could play drums and sing. And she could play drums quite well, as we'll talk about. They took her off of the drums and had Hal Blaine from the Wrecking Crew um, play the drums on this. And then it just worked very seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently, although Karen was a very accomplished drummer, they wanted her to focus more on singing and she just had never really worked in the studio extensively before. And she was used to playing loud live and it's a different touch for the studio. Mm-hmm. And I guess, uh, according to Hal Blaine, her parents were present. The The Carpenter's parents were <laughs> present for mu- much of the recording sessions and they were kind of like, what's the word I want to use here? Overbearing, controlling. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I guess there's no other way to say it. Yeah, they stage parents. So they're you know they're going like, why isn't she on the kit? Why is she not singing it in the register that she you know used to sing it? You know, all they were interfering with the sessions, and uh, it sounded a a little difficult. It sounded like an interesting scenario for. You know, they they were young at the time, uh, Richard and uh, Karen, but, you know, they were still adults. Yeah, but their parents were, uh, not to get too into it that this time, because we'll talk about it later, but they were just very, very involved in their lives up until the end, in that they always wanted Richard to be the more talented one and didn't really understand why anybody even really cared as much about Karen as they did. It's very odd. Ooh, yeah, that's toxic parenting right there yeah, right um well yeah we will i'm sure we will come back to that but yeah that was their breakthrough hit the car that was carpenter's breakthrough hit it went to number one on billboard within eight weeks of its release and stayed there for four weeks and yeah re- originally it was just a single as i mentioned earlier and i think those uh multi-tracked harmonies are really ahead of their time they sound not unlike things that Queen were doing a few years after this in the studio. Totally. Yeah. But yeah, so they were, this was their first number one hit. And then it was kind of like over after that, meaning like, you know, they just were, you know, had hit after hit for, you know, an album after album for the next 10 years. But they were not well received by rock critics critics (laughs) at the time because, you know, psychedelic rock was really popular, hard rock. It was all very, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and free love and stuff. And they were very not that at all yeah um but they but they were very but they were hugely popular i mean they sold millions and millions of records yeah you know despite this you know i uh, was thinking a lot about that about how they weren't seen as part of the counterculture they were seen as more a part of the establishment but Mm -hmm. they were yeah they they were critically maligned but their records were selling and i honestly I, i i thought about it and i almost feel like the perfect encapsulation of the attitude towards the carpenters is the scene in Tommy boy, the movie with Chris Farley and David <laughs> uh-huh. Spade, where they're flip, they're in the car and they're flipping around in the stations, you know, all oh, that sucks. Uh, oh, this song is great. Now that song sucks. And then they, they stop the dial on the opening of superstar and they both kind of stop. And one of them's like, boy, talk about lame. Oh yeah, this is terrible. <laughs> well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I can live with it if you can, you know, and they both, and then they, it cuts right. to them just singing real the chorus just all passionately. And I think that's, you know, yeah, it wasn't cool to like them, but how could you resist the music? Exactly. Yeah, it kind of got me thinking that same way as the smooth jazz when we were talking about Bob James recently, 
they were kind of zigging when everything else was zagging. They leaned into being sugar sweet, clean image when the Vogue thing was crazy rock and roll. And I think that, you know, a lot of people really responded to that. Because as I said, you know, this album came out in 70. There's a lot of turmoil in the country. And I think people are really looking, a lot of the country was really looking for some, you know, return to a more law and order 1950s, I'd say <laughs> law and order. Yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> um, you know, and there was that, that really, uh, the Carpenters really nailed that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to, uh, yeah, do we want to kind of, you, you mentioned that it was hit after hit. Do we want to kind of reveal some of their story after this? Sure. They, this was Close to You, their second album. Between, uh, after Close to You, they recorded eight more albums and they toured extensively, like constantly for those 10 years. I think they read, they were doing up to like 180 dates a year. And so... They had many hits. There's like Top of the World, There's Superstar, Yesterday Once More. Top of the World. I know, I love that song. <laughs> and um, compounding all of their touring, they were just workaholics. They, in the se- late 70s, starting in 76, they did a series of uh, television specials, which even made their popularity even only increase. Yeah. And they kind of poked fun they kind of poked fun of themselves too about their image on these television specials. They're re- they're really funny. But there's this one that if you guys haven't seen you should. Um it's their first one, but Karen Carpenter, I think she plays on like 15 drum kits that are all set up on different platforms mm-hmm. and it's just so amazing to watch. Um I think if you search strike up the band Karen Carpenter, or just Karen Carpenter drums or something on YouTube, you can find it. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, I've I've had that autoplay after watching other YouTube videos and was highly impressed. That's that was definitely one of the points of me being like, okay, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot here to dig into. This is cool. Yeah, she can drum with the best of them. For sure. I read that in like a nineteen seventy five like poll or something in a magazine. I don't think it was Rolling Stone, but she uh beat John Bonham for a best rock drummer. Nice. <laughs> So yeah, so they were, you know, they were touring constantly, constantly, you know, constantly in the studio. Um, and then there were all these television specials. And then uh, it's in around 78, I mean, things started to fall apart. Richard uh, Carpenter, as I mentioned, had insomnia, it was crippled with insomnia. And uh, between that, the insomnia and just the exhaustion of being a workaholic, he got addicted to quaaludes and he had to go into rehab for a while and so during that time, Karen Carpenter released her first solo record by herself. He was not involved in that. Um, and she was really pleased with it. It was more of a disco album, but he was not happy with it. And neither were her parents or their parents. So um, she kind of abandoned it, um, her solo career or that style. And they ended up getting back together. It wasn't released until the 90s, right? That solo album that was recorded, but never- the first one. Yeah, she shelved it. So then when Richard got back or got out of rehab, then they started resuming recording again. Yeah. And so then Richard was not obviously the only one afflicted with the pressures of being on the road and the pressures of fame and the pressures really of both of them having to be perfect. Like, again, this wholesome, perfect image that they, you know, have been kind of put upon them. I don't know if they necessarily like 
ever really embrace that. It was just sort of who they were. But they were, you know, it was very difficult to live up to. And Karen Carpenter, you know, very sadly had, was afflicted with um, anorexia, which people didn't really know about during that time. And then she passed away in 1983 from that. Yeah, and I saw that she was actually getting better leading up to that, but her body was just wrecked. Yeah, she did She did go into um, a facility for it. She had to go back east. So at the time, there was really, there was only a couple doctors in the entire U.S. that were, you know, specialists in eating disorders or had any understanding of what it was. Um, so she had to go into a facility um, on the east coast, and she did gain weight, which she maintained for the rest of her life, but um, she just succumbed to it um, in 1983. Yeah, I think it was officially heart failure. Yes, yes, it was. And her death really was kind of uh, the first time that anorexia became part of a the national conversation. or The awareness of it was made much greater. Yeah, I remember that being like one of the first things I heard about the Carpenters was the, the anorexia side of it. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because I was thinking she pa- she was only 32 when she passed away. And I was thinking about how I was on here last time talking about Minnie Ripperton who also passed at 32. Yeah. And she had a and she died of a you know, of a disease that people weren't talking about either, which was breast cancer. They both had um their lives were cut too short by these sort of female illnesses you know predominantly you know with eating disorder it's female on um, these female illnesses that no one was really talking about whether it was you know taboo or just not discussed um but yeah they both yeah 30 they were both died at 32 isn't that crazy yeah yeah tragic yeah i think honestly when i watched that biography with my father when i was a teenager i I found that part of the story just really sad and I don't know why that if if that sometimes people are drawn to tragedy as part of an artist's story and sometimes yeah. not right. and in that case I was not it was re- I just found it really sad and just to think that anytime the people have to kind of almost be the trailblazer for people talking about something more but they you know they unfortunately succumb to it themselves it's just really yeah. sad yeah definitely you know not to sound like glib or something but i mean that's why you know these they're kind of seen they're very much seen as you know being these very well scrubbed kids next door but you know when she's singing these ballads like superstar uh i mean you can see i mean whether she's in you know intending to or not i mean in the pain is there you know you can really see it yeah. And feel it and hear it. You know, I hope people, you know, will continue not to just write them off as that that way because they are they they do really have a lot of very deep, deep emotional, dark songs that I think are very whether you know I know she didn't write them herself, but they're very autobiographical. Yeah, and watching a lot of performances preparing for this, I started to realize that her the way that she carries herself when she sings. The person that it reminded me a lot of is actually Graham Parsons. If you see an old footage oh, of like the, the Flying Burrito Brothers, just sort uh-huh. of similar way of conveying the emotions with body language. Oh, I know. she The way she performs, I mean, it's so honest and real. 
and even raw, even though it's very smooth, you know, her the way her voice sounds, but it's like the way she just, the way she carries her head and like her, she performs so often with her eyes closed and it just feels very, she's very in touch with with what she's singing about. It's just, it's very clear. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I easily forget that she did not write the words she's singing and they feel very mm -hmm. much like they're coming straight from her. Right. Well, we talked a little bit about her as a drummer and she does drum on some tracks on this record. And we, I'd like to, at this point, feature the one that really got me in another song, the last song on the album side two track six. This is Karen on here and it's a suite in three movements. It starts, there's a little short prelude at the very beginning. It's based on, a, uh, a piece by a composer, George Friedrich Handel. It's his uh, Messiah from 1741. And this part, the part that it's based on is called, And Lo, the Angel of the Lord Came Upon Them. So we'll hear that. Then there's a pop song section, a brief Baroque instrumental section, and then an extended jazz instrumental section. And we'll at least get a little bit into the jazz part in this clip. It's quite the adventure. Thank you. 
So that is the song that officially sold me on the Carpenters the first time I heard it. I think that is also the perfect song to play for people who are Carpenters skeptics. Cause like how, dubious. Yeah. <laughs> how can you how can you deny how good of a song that is? It's just man, I've I've talked plenty of times on the podcast about how much I love it when songs take unexpected shifts and mm-hmm. that's just the perfect example of it right there. I know. It's it's uh it's surprisingly heavy for being them. Yeah, definitely. And far out. <laughs> definitely. I also put that song on the playlist for the Buzzy Linhart episode that we did a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. Another guy that was really good at having jazz-inspired pop songs that took unexpected shifts. Yeah, that one is the only song that we're featuring today that was written by Richard Carpenter on this album. Um, he wrote several, and it was done in collaboration with the lyricist that Taylor mentioned, John Bettis. And I looked a little bit into what else John Bettis is known for. And for me, the biggest one that came up in my research was a about a decade after this album, he was tapped by someone named Quincy Jones to write lyrics for a little song called Human Nature from a little album called Thriller. Ooh, okay. Yeah, and he did did a lot of other work. He wrote stuff for Madonna. So I think that this was kind of his start with working with the Carpenters, but he went on to quite the career as a lyricist. And I was going to talk, kind of run through some of the other people involved with this album. Uh, First of all, I will say that all the vocals you hear are Karen and Richard Carpenter. There's no one else singing, so... They were doing Mm -hmm. a lot of multi-tracking in the studio. And Richard is on the keyboards, but he's also the arranger and the producer, even though it says produced by Jack Dougherty. It's mainly, it's Richard who's doing it. Jack Dougherty, Karen and Richard saw him as more of an A&R man who booked musicians and studio time. And it seems that Richard was a little salty that Jack Dougherty would frequently get credit as being the studio genius when it was mostly his engineering and skills that were forming the sound. He, mm-hmm. <laughs> Jack Dougherty was not a sound architect by any means. He might approve the arrangements and whatnot or have a little input. One funny thing that I came across in just researching Richard Carpenter was that he said that his musical style is informed by the three B's, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and Burt Bacharach. And, uh, <laughs> that, that, I mean, you can see all of that in there. Yeah. Yeah. He, he knows, percent. he knows himself apparently. <laughs> Karen is drumming on about half the songs. And as we mentioned, the other half are Hal Blaine. He was brought in by Herb Alpert. He had played on all of the Tijuana brass hits and he was part of the wrecking crew. Of course, if you're not familiar with the wrecking crew, they were a loose collective of session players based in Los Angeles. And uh, Hal Blaine is known for playing on a lot of legendary, huge hits by Frank Sinatra and Nancy Sinatra, the Beach Boys, Simon and Garfunkel, the Ronettes, John Denver. And on bass on this is another member of the Wrecking Crew. And uh, Taylor mentioned him earlier. The Carpenters had cut some early demos in his home studio, Joe Osborne. Yeah, John Osborne, right? Is it it John Osborne? John or Joe. (laughs) Just not, yeah. Joseph Osborne. It's not Joan Osborne. Yeah, it's not Joan Osborne. (laughs) What What if God was one of us? (laughs) 
<laughs> and so when, I think when most people think of the Wrecking Crew bassist, they think of Carol Kay. That's the first one I think of. Mm-hmm. But you have to remember that the Wrecking Crew had to have multiple people on every instrument because they were tracking day in, day out. So uh, Osborne's on a lot of the same tracks as Hal Blaine, the, a lot of those same legendary cuts. One album that came up that both of them played on that I think we need to do on the podcast in the future, and Taylor, maybe you'll want to come back for this one, is Richard Harris's A Tramp Shining. Love it. <laughs> that has the MacArthur Park on yeah, it. Yeah, I love that. I mean, Jimmy Webb is like my favorite lyricist of all time. So yeah, I would definitely come back on it. And yeah, and I... Yeah. I love MacArthur Park. <laughs> yeah. That's a, and that's one that you can find for cheap that at least here in the, the Midwest, I don't know in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. I got my copy at a thrift store. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. stay tuned for a future episode where Taylor comes back and, yeah. and talks about that. Yeah. One of my old screen names was sweet green icing. Oh really? MacArthur Park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love it. We also have Dan Woodham's credited on bass. He had been in Spectrum that we mentioned earlier with Richard and Karen. And Jim Horn is on here. He is a saxophonist and woodwind session player. He first played with Dwayne Eddy in the late 50s before becoming one of the most in-demand session players. Uh, Just to give you an idea of some of the songs he's been on. Jose Feliciano's Light My Fire. Hank Williams Jr.'s Are You Ready for Some Football? Yeah. <laughs> Toto. <laughs> yeah. Toto, Africa, and Rosanna. Wow. Uh, wow. George Harrison got my mind set on you. He's on the Stones' Goat's Head Soup, Van Dyke Park's Song Cycle, and Warren Zevon's Excitable Boy. Oh, he's wow. on all three of those albums. That's just scratching yeah. the surface. Other credits uh, for Woodwinds are Bob Messenger and Doug Strawn. They were part of the Carpenters live band. And of course I mentioned Chuck Finley on the flugelhorn solo. I'm close to you. He's also credited, I think as trumpet and he had, uh, he was a regular collaborator of Steely Dan and BB King and was a member of the band on the tonight show with Jay Leno from 1994 to 2001. So yeah, the players on this have uh, made the rounds. Uh, there's violins and violas and cellos and harps also credited. There's a lot of players and, I didn't didn't have time to dig into all of their backgrounds. <laughs> one funny one that ties further into Taylor, you being here for this episode and your previous album that you uh, were on for is uh, Dick Bogert, one of the engineers, was the person who remixed Minnie Ripperton's Perfect Angel for quadraphonic sound. Oh, so that makes sense. Yeah, so it all ties together. That's why that's why you're here for this one too. but that's all i had on the players i could have gone deeper but i i think that just gives an indication of uh how involved these players were and uh why this record sounds the way it does well they obviously all knew they were you know that this this was going to be something special you know um and it was yeah i did want to say one thing about goodbye to love do you remember the guitarist play like name on that, I can't remember right Tony now. starts with a P. Hello? Tony Peluso. Oh, Peluso. Okay. He, I wanted to bring it back to another song and tie those two songs together because, um, as I was saying, that, that, you know, that last third of another song is pretty heavy for what I, you know, from them. And in Goodbye to Love, when 
Tony was tapped to play the guitar solo, he was kind of holding back because he himself thought, oh, like, you know, I want to play in a carpenter style. So he was kind of playing very gently. And like Richard was basically like, no, let it shred. And um, he wanted it to he wanted it to be heavier than than it was, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they weren't just totally they weren't completely committed to just playing these sort of soft rock songs, you know. And what's so funny to me about that, about the fuzz guitar solo and Goodbye to Love, is that Carpenter's fans wrote them hate mail after that because they said that they had sold out. And I love that they thought, you know, this, <laughs> you know, I love that, <laughs> I love that this was what made them sell out was a fuzz guitar solo, which was, you know, yeah, purists. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. well, that's you know the level of perfectionism that they, that both Richard and Karen held themselves to was actually pretty remarkable. Uh, I mean, to a degree that maybe it was unhealthy for them. And and I guess I saw there was something that Karen actually was known for. If any of the hired guns messed up live, she would give them like the stern eye. Oh, bringing out, bringing out her inner James Brown. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't think she actually find them or anything, but, uh, But yeah, you know, like I, I, you know, they were very hardworking and yeah, like probably to a fault, it probably ended up taking its toll on both of their health. Yeah, definitely. Because they were not partiers, you know, they were just workaholics. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah, I feel like that, that stuff's all interrelated to how their parents treated them in particular. It sounds like the mother was very withholding of affection. And then they're trying to, you know, be perfect to get that affection and attention that human beings need and got caught in that cycle forever until they're both wrecked from it, it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And the it was the, yeah, it was the expectation to be perfect and the control that they exerted over them. So everything, it was just too rigid for like either of them or really anybody, no one could live up to that, you know, or live within those constraints of, you know, what was, what was expected by them from the, you know, from themselves and from their parents. Yeah. And at the time that they were making this album, and I think several years after even, they were both still living at home with their parents in Downey, California. So Uh, yeah, they had to insist that they were moving out and their parents were very not okay with that and even when they moved out karen and richard lived together after that yeah yeah and it it seems that both of them really struggled to have relationships you know like uh, like uh, karen did get married uh briefly briefly yeah and it it didn't work out and i uh richard did too eventually correct yeah he married his adopted first cousin yeah that was weird oh really they're not blood related, but still a little still weird, strange. <laughs> I mean, yeah, very strange. Um, but you know, they're still married and they have five kids together. But um, but yeah, I I think they I think they both yearned for I mean, relationships and love, and were not they weren't because of their de- extremely demanding work schedule and their work ethic. They were they went without it for so many years. And um, it came out in their work, you know, in their lyrics, even if, you know, they didn't write them. It's still, they're still autobiographical, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it seems that, uh, yeah, like we said, Richard 
curated music that was in their spirit. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, just a lot of loneliness, a lot of wistfulness and yearning and sadness. But then also, you know, they they can can do complete opposite of that and, you know, have songs of just, you know, they're so purely joyful. Like Top of the World is a very purely joyful song. They, they performed like on, you know, Sing, you know, from Sesame Street. That's another, you know, song that they did. Well, Sean, were you able to find uh, adequate similar artists and songs oh, I got, for our Spotify playlist? I got plenties. And uh, a lot of artists that we've covered on the show before, I feel like, have some similarities. Taylor, you had two uh, suggested songs that I put on the playlist. you want to talk about those real quick? I did. Or did Peter suggest me? Or I thought I, I thought you were passing on Taylor's <laughs> suggestions. Did I get that confused? No, but I, th- <laughs> I think Taylor will agree with these. The two songs that I suggested for this playlist were Judy Sill, Lady O, and The Road. I love it. Yeah, I know you're a Judy Sill fan, correct? Mm-hmm. I yeah, definitely. <sighs> Probably. And yet another yet another female li- artist whose life was cut too short. Yeah. Yeah. Similar age too. I think she was maybe 35 when yeah. she passed. Um, I've only been aware of her for about four or five years, but it has been a more beautiful four or five years since I've been aware of her music. Yeah. Really fascinating individual. Unfortunately, not a dollar record artist by any means. You're not going to, but you can pick up uh, reissues for, for a decent price. Also, the other song was the Roaches Hammond song was the other uh, one I suggested. Yeah, definitely. And they're siblings too. So that makes <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah, harmonizing siblings. Yeah. I think almost, I was thinking about, I you know, honestly, I think the Carpenters are probably my favorite band other than the Bee Gees. And both of those are... Siblings. <laughs> both of them are sibling groups. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, there's something about siblings go, like singing together. Blood harmony. You know, because they're... Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think maybe it stems from, I mean, my, my first favorite movie when I was very, very little was Sound of Music, which is all about, you know, s- s- siblings singing together. So maybe that's where it comes from. But, um, <laughs> all makes uh, sense. But yeah, no, The Roaches, oh my gosh, that first record. I mean, you can get all those records. I found, I found at least two at thrift stores. Really? Yeah, you can still find, I think. I mean, I don't know. What do you, oh, you guys... I think you guys dig more physically at stores than I do. Um, so, but I, I, yeah, I mean, when I found those records like seven years ago or something, they were both at, the, at least two of them came from thrift stores. Um, Amazing. Yeah. My time working at a record store, uh, Roach's records would just sit around forever. It seemed like no one ever wanted to buy them. Yeah, but they're so good. Yep. That's, that's yeah. why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Suzzy Roach. No, not Suzzy. Maggie Roach. She had a very strange register but it's so it's very almost like baritone but it's it's beautiful yeah uh, i guess like i would add to that playlist carol king so far away to that because it, i think it, it kind of is in the spirit of a lot of the ballads that karen sang and also like you can still find tapestry at a record store for a dollar so and all of the song and all of the songs you know on Carol King's album, I mean, everybody knows all those songs, but they're still really great, even though they're kind of ubiquitous, you know? So, believe it or not, I'd actually put So Far Away on the playlist already. Oh, wow. <laughs> there you go. There, there you go. Beautiful. Cool. I didn't fuck that one up. All right. 
Uh, a couple other artists I featured on the playlist, uh, Roberta Flack, Jimmy Spheris, Bread, uh, Leo Sayer, Minnie Ripperton, Carol King, like we said, Joan Armitrading, Tammy Wynette, Laura Nero. Uh, I did mm, love this playlist. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Patty LaBelle and the Bluebells. I did put the Sonic Youth Superstar cover on there. And then I uh, also put a Les Paul and Mary Ford song on there. I think that is a, it's really cool that they're, you mentioned they're influenced by them because that makes a lot of sense, not only with the vocal harmonies, but uh, the Les Paul and Mary Ford stuff, I think has a, a lot of underlying sadness and emotional depth to it that not many of their contemporaries had at that time period. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can find those and other songs on our Spotify playlist that will be available at the same time as this episode. You can just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, on Spotify to find this playlist and all other Season 2 playlists. And please remember that if you like us and want to help us out, you can go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast, or you can find the link in the show notes. There are different levels you can, different tiers that you can pledge to support us. And you can also, of course, great way to get word out on us is to just tell a friend, check out, I buy that for a dollar if they're into records and record collecting. And do we have any uh, closing thoughts on carpenters or anything we've talked about? I would encourage everybody to check out a, that Todd Haynes film that I recommend or was speaking about earlier in the show. Um, it's called superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. And it's a short, it's uh, not more than an hour. And you should be able to find it on YouTube. All right. And actually, there's a there's a TV movie like from 1989 that's surprisingly good. That's called just the Karen. I think it's called the Karen Carpenter story or something like that. But it's actually pretty good. And then there's a book that's also really great called Why Karen Carpenter Matters. Yeah, I kind of had wished that I had read like a a full book on them in preparation for this, but thankfully, Taylor, you know your carpenters. uh, i'm wearing a carpet i'm wearing my vintage carpenter shirt right now oh you are in full character yeah (laughs) (laughs) um do you have any uh anything you'd like to plug aside from what you talked about up top i know you you keep yourself busy with a number of projects that people can check out yeah um i guess there's nothing too active going on right now i mean my radio show i'll just plug that again It's called um, The Windmills of Your Mind, and it's on NTS Radio, and it's every fourth Thursday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, but you can also find all of my archived radio shows on my website, windmillsofyourmind.org, and yeah, so check that out. And actually, I wanted to thank you guys because I used to not do, I hadn't been recording air breaks on my radio show for, since I left KXLU, which is college radio here in LA. But then once I had my microphone and everything set up from the mini Ripperton episode, I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to start recording air breaks now. Oh, like, wow. Set up. So yeah. So thanks. We've uh, changed the direction of windmills of your mind. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Nice. Wow. I'd buy that for a dollar. Makes a difference. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So we were gonna we were gonna get out of here on the Tim Harden song that they do on this album. They do do a number of well known songs. Uh, they do the Beatles' "Help," 
and they do uh, Baby It's You, which I actually know that as a Beatles cover, the Beatles covered that song, but it's uh, not originally the Beatles, but they do that on here as well. Maybe it's you help. And here's reason to believe the Tim Harden song, which I, the first version of this song that I remember was the Rod Stewart unplugged version from 1993. That was all over top 40 radio. When I, that's what around the time that I really started to tune into the radio and, uh, it took me years to realize that this was a Tim Harden song. And, I've since heard a lot of versions of it. And I would, I will say that I think my favorite version isn't this one that, that we hear on here. It's not the Carpenter's version. I think it's Karen Dalton. I think she's my favorite version. And it's kind of almost like an incomplete afterthought version of the song. Is anyone else familiar with that one? Yeah. I, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, I like both their takes on it. Dueling Karens, we'll call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this this is a close second, I would say. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's funny. Yeah, the, the two Karens. Yeah. I I love this version. I love the the piano at the beginning and uh Richard sings on this one too. And I just love her emotiveness. I think she really the lyrics the lyrics really clearly speak to her. It's, it's obvious when she sings it. So Yeah. Well, we will go out on that. Thank you so much for listening. To I'd buy that for a dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Taylor Rowley. If I listen long enough to you, I'd find a Thank you.